This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Fiction is closer to reality than you might realize. In Rebecca Mackay's latest novel, I Have Some Questions for You. It's a gripping book about Bodie Kane, a successful film producer and podcaster who returns to teach at her old boarding school, not too unlike the author's own experience. The book unearths a mishandled murder case from Bodie's adolescence. It touches on the nation's obsession with true crime podcasts and how systemic racism has shaped our criminal justice system. I Have Some Questions for You is out tomorrow. Rebecca Mackay, welcome back to Reset. Thank you so much. Good to have you here. You know, my first thought... And I'd love to hear from you on this. Why do you think that so many people are drawn to this true crime genre? What is it? You know, it's nothing new. I'll tell you that. Um, but it's so addictive. It is. I think, honestly, I think there's something evolutionary. Like we, we see something bad happened and we want to know why. We want to know what. You think, you know, back a couple million years. Oh, like what happened to that guy? He fell off a cliff. I better not go over there. Um, right. I think there's something going on there. And of course, we love a mystery. I mean, they sold souvenirs outside the Lindbergh trial. So right. this is that nothing, is you know, podcasting is a new medium and that's what everyone wants to talk about right now. But this is nothing new. Well, in this book, as I mentioned, the main character, Bodie, she returns to her old boarding school from the 90s as a guest professor. She's teaching this course on podcasts at the same time. She's actually returning to the scene of a crime. Her old roommate was murdered there during their senior year. And the more that they dig, the more that Bodie and her students are uncovering this new information that didn't turn up back then. Where did the idea for this come from? It's so layered. I, I love it. <laughs> well, one of the things about it being layered is, of course, the ideas came from a bunch of different places. But a couple of the main ones, um, one is... I do, it's a long story, but I live on the campus of the boarding school where my husband teaches. Okay. Lived there for a while. And uh, I met him on the East Coast. I'm the one who dragged him back to Chicago, but it happens to be the same school that I attended as a day student in the 90s. That's so so cool. long story short, I live on the campus of my high school. There are a lot of similarities, right? So you're you're currently living on your old boarding campus, <laughs> yeah. uh, boarding school campus. Bodie's a professor. I know your parents were professors, too. Yeah, my parents taught uh, at UIC here in the city for uh, years and years. Yeah. I mean, was that deliberate? Uh, no, it's not even. You know, what's funny is one of the the things that I keep coming back to in all of my fiction is characters who are academics or artists. And, uh, you know, I worry that that's a rut that I'm in, but I hope other people just see that as a theme of my work. <laughs> uh, but those are the characters I'm drawn to. So let's talk about this this book here. I, I have some questions for you. It's a very satisfying slow burn. I was very just enthralled <laughs> as I turned each page. Good. You tackle so many issues here. That's I think that's the part that I was trying to wrap my mind around. Yeah. You're, you're you're digging into this problematic obsession that we just talked about with true crime, um, specifically though true crime with white women victims. Yeah, yeah. Cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> systemic racism. You're like, okay, what happened in 2020 and 2021? I'm going to tackle all of it. Basically, did you set out to be? critical of those issues from the start? You know, not really just because I don't lead with issues. I really lead with story, story, plot. That's what gets me into a book. But I want to, as much as I'm enjoying the mystery genre, I wanted to write a realist novel. And the realism of unsolved cases or missolved cases, wrongly solved cases, 
you start looking at that closely. Now you're talking about the carceral system, which, of course, disproportionately affects black men. So that's what I'm going to write about. That's what I'm going to go with. I start doing research into the justice system in New Hampshire, very specifically, which is where the book is set. And I start getting into issues. New Hampshire is one of the states that doesn't require recording of interrogations. Start getting into the realities of that. If you actually look at the underbelly of the crime narratives that we like to absorb on that we like to absorb on Dateline on those podcasts, mm-hmm. you could get the impression that most cases are solved and most cases are solved correctly. But the flip side of that is that, first of all, a lot of them are never solved. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are, quote unquote, solved, so many of them see the wrong person behind bars. Mm-hmm. So the story itself leads me into those issues. It's not something that I go in with a checklist and go, you know, I want to write a social novel. But a realist novel ends up being a social novel if you're aware of what's going on in the world. Right. Well, to that end, I, I want to bring you to this this conversation that struck me here. This was between a student and Bodhi. Um, they were talking about the class assignment to create this right. podcast. So Britt, who's the student, says, like, also, me as a white person, if I wanted to tell the story of a white person's murder, then I'm ignoring the violence done to black and brown bodies. But I can't tell a story of violence against people of color because I'm white, and that would be appropriation. And then Bodhi later replies, well, I really don't think that's appropriation. And honestly, this is for a small audience. Right. They're having this larger discussion there about, you know, the crimes and, and to your point, you know, the ones that are more, quote unquote, interesting, right, which tends to be the unsolved ones. But what was your inspiration for that scene? Yeah, you know, I'm not trying to come down, certainly, on any side of the ethics of podcasting, of true crime media. Um, I might have my own opinions on those things. But in terms of the book, what I'm doing is giving different characters different perspectives, different points of view. And we have here a a generational divide. Bodhi is someone who graduated from this same school in the 90s. Mm-hmm. She has, um, you know, she hasn't really reexamined in a while how much things have changed. She comes back to the same school where people were just kind of blithely sexist, racist, homophobic, and sees this new generation that they're young, they're still really working things out, uh, but they're asking these questions that her generation certainly wasn't asking. Right. And, you know, one of the things that gets questioned by many different people throughout the book in many different ways is why certain stories capture the public imagination. Yeah, because I I find it interesting that you make this point in your book by writing a book that's focused on a true crime mystery of a white, wealthy woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's sort of, um, it's leaning into some of the tropes of genre um, and then taking that story and saying, okay, let's look at this as if it is a real case, not um, the clickbait on the internet, not, I actually, I was just in target the other day and they have these uh, packaged boxed, like solve a mystery games um, where on the side of each one was like a, a, conventionally attractive white teenage girl, several in a row. And you're going, what is going on here? Right. Interesting. Um, But but really, really interesting in in an alarming, several alarming ways. Um, So 
taking the story, the kind of story that does get that media play, that does capture the public imagination, and then saying, okay, what are the things that we're missing? What are the realities that we're missing when there's a story like this? Is there, um, in this case, there's the wrongful incarceration aspect. There's the race aspect mm-hmm. where the wrong person, it becomes pretty clear, this isn't a spoiler, the wrong person is in prison. There are class issues going on. There are privilege issues going on. Um, you know, I could have told certainly a different story. I could have told, you know, infinite versions of the same story. But basically going, okay, listen, if this is the story we want, this is the story we want societally, let's actually look at it. Let's actually look at what that story would really be. Tell us about your research process. I I imagine that there was a lot to learn about the legal system, for instance. Yeah, there really was. You know, I didn't want the Perry Mason version of this. Um, Like I said, you know, I want to dig into the realities. I found a wonderful public defender in the state of New Hampshire who worked with me um, I also found, you know, there, there were several other lawyers along the way, people who spoke to me about the carceral system along the way. Um, but uh, one thing that I already knew but that was driven home in my research that I wanted to make sure I really uh, emphasized was the near impossibility of overturning a wrongful conviction, mm-hmm. the near impossibility even of getting to the point of retrial. Um, you can find actual exculpatory evidence. You can find actual evidence that someone else committed the crime and you still cannot get the case retried. Courts don't want to give up their convictions. Prosecutors, judges, police departments don't want these things overturned. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we get the we get a very different message from a lot of media that wants to tell a very satisfying story that, you know, the right person confesses or something comes up and boom, the prison doors swing wide and this person walks free. Um, And it's simply not the case at all. Mm -mm. So with that in mind, who are you most hoping to reach with this novel? Absolutely. Anyone who wants a story, first of all, of course. Right. Um, I think that, you know, there are a lot of people out there who consider themselves you know, true crime aficionados, true crime fans. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that instinct of wanting to look at some of the things that scare you, wanting to look at those directly. But I do think that the way we tell those stories can really give people a false impression of how accurate the the legal system and the police are when they arrest someone. And I would love for people who are already true crime, quote unquote, fans who maybe pick this up. And of course, it's funny, I'm not writing true crime. I'm writing fiction crime, fictional crime, right? (laughs) Well, true, yes. (laughs) But it is it concerns the true crime genre and, and would appeal to people for that reason. But I would love for those people to look at this and consider some of the realities that they might be missing uh, in, you know, a Law & Order episode or in a podcast that tells a story with a neat and tidy ending. That's good. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking with Chicago author Rebecca Mackay about her latest novel, I Have Some Questions For You, which is out tomorrow. Um, so I want to go back to talking about that first wave of the Me Too movement yeah. for, for a moment. It shows up in the book, this topic. Uh, I want you to think back to when that hashtag first began to trend. Uh, I think four to five years ago, story after story was coming out, was getting exposed. What was going through your mind at the time? Like, what did you think as the movement was gaining momentum? Yeah. First of all, 
I could not believe that it stuck around. I really thought it was going to be a day or two mm. on Twitter. Interesting. And why? I, because that's how these things tend well, to go. You're right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, oh, we all care. Let's all change our Instagram picture to something. And then the next day we've moved on. I couldn't believe that this was sticking, that there were actual repercussions. Um, that blew me away. The other thing that really surprised me and that made its way into this book and into my thinking about this book, which I was starting, I started this book in early 2019, so right after that first Me Too wave, I was amazed at the way people were looking back not only at the big overt traumas that I certainly had in my own life, that other people had in theirs, but also at the small things that we had all swept under the rug, the things that happened to people on their first job or in school, um, those moments of harassment. And mm -hmm. the way that, you know, for me, going to high school and college in the 90s, something happened and I, the message that I've kept receiving was, it's my fault if I'm not okay with it. Mm. That, you know, I don't have a sense of humor. I'm supposed to be chill about this. That's supposed to be funny. And I, I think everyone else, you know, had that same message. And, and so none of us are talking to each other about it. None of us is saying, that really bothered me. Did that really bother you? This is really... So does that immediately spark the idea for a book? No, you? no. And, you know, the book was already in the works. So because I um, was... I was always going to write a boarding school novel. People kept asking me, when are you going to write a boarding school novel because of this very unusual because living your situation story. Yeah. that I have, right? And so um, I was always going to do that. I always wanted it to be about someone looking back from adulthood. I didn't want to write from a teenager's point of view. I wanted the adult point of view. Um, someone fundamentally stuck in the present. The book doesn't take us back into the past. She looks back on 1994, 95, but the book doesn't take us there. And I, because we have a woman looking back on her own time in high school, she's about the same age as me. I'm looking back. A lot of us are looking back. Mm -hmm. Maybe because of that Me Too moment, but also because when you're in your 40s, it's a logical time to have teenagers of your own, mm -hmm. which I do now. And me you, too. Right. You start <laughs> thinking about the world, the high school they're entering into you start noticing generational differences, the things they oh, yeah. might not put up with that we did. And you start also thinking about uh, the things you you want them to avoid that happened to you that might still happen. So I'm, I'm noticing a, a running theme here. You, you, you've written three other books and a collection of short stories, right? And there's always this thread of time in your books. Uh, to your point, I mean, the stories are always told over generations. Mm -hmm. uh, they're told over decades. What is it about the passage of time that's so fascinating to you? I wish I could tell you. Maybe it's good that I can't because that's the reason then that I have to write about it instead. Yeah. If I could put it in one sentence, maybe I'd be done. You know, <laughs> um, I there's there's always something. It's the echoes of time. It's, you know, The Great Believer is my last book. We went back and forth between the 80s and 2015. This book, we're, like I said, we're always in the present but it's very much about memory mm -hmm. and the fallibility of memory. You do the flashbacks so well and Thank so you. seamlessly. Thank you. And it's, you know, I, one thing I didn't want was I, I'm perfectly willing as a reader to enjoy my own suspension of disbelief when someone has a memory within a book 
And it's like seven pages of perfectly crystal clear chronological memory yeah. of everything that happened seven years ago. Oh, and the air smelled like coconut. And then I lifted up my left hand. And it's, it's as a reader, I'm fine with it's that. It's fine. Yeah. But just, just because of this project thematically, I wanted to avoid that. I wanted her to, I wanted this character to be looking back mm-hmm. and doubting her memories, maybe remembering fragments, having a reason for remembering what she remembered. And I didn't want that kind of uh, cinematic effect of suddenly we're there. I think that we have all at some point or another tried to reconcile um, our past. Of course. You know, well, what would you say is the best advice that you might have learned personally about approaching that or maybe advice that comes to mind after helping your main character (laughs) deal with that? (laughs) Right. I mean, for me, it's about fictionalizing things, right? I'm not I'm certainly uh, very specifically not writing about my own past, um, trying to avoid anything I can that happened uh, to me in my high school to a- that happened to anyone else. But still the, the sentiment, the, um, the, the basic ideas of dealing with, um, a, you know, a roommate you don't fully understand or a harasser or a friend who's got no time for you, th- those things, yeah. right? Um, those make their way in. And for me, fictionalizing, is this incredible way of instead of being stuck in my own memories and stuck with myself as the narrator going in and working that out i don't i know that not everyone's a writer not everyone's a filmmaker or whatever but i think you can get that through reading through movies through listening to other people's stories uh those are the things that allow you to find a narrative that might be parallel to your own or or just you know maybe a few points of connection that's what can allow you to look back at, with fresh eyes. So this is your your fifth piece coming out. It's how my did, fifth book? Yeah. How does it feel this time around? Who? Um, it feels great. Things are good. Um, people have you know the book's not out yet, but people have been connecting to it early, which is amazing mm-hmm. and gratifying. Um, the Great Believers, my last novel, that was really the breakout book for me. It was the one. It's you know it reached a lot more readers. Uh, than my previous books even combined. And so, you know, I find myself uh, with this book for the first time uh, starting out with a larger readership, starting out with more people waiting That's for the book. That's great. It is great. It's more pressure. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> All um, the pre-orders coming in, yeah, right? Yeah. It, it definitely helped as I was writing to know that there were people waiting for the book. It helps to know that you'll be taken seriously, which... As That's a, a great way to look at it. Yeah. As, I would be like, oh, no, <laughs> the pressure to finish this thing. There's that, too. On time. There's that, too. But, you know, as I will say, you know, with my first couple books, as a woman, unknown, younger, um, I there were, you know, people who definitely took me seriously and, and a lot of people who didn't that um, took my books for being more, maybe a little bit more lighthearted than they actually were. Mm. Or How um, did you feel about that? It was, you know, I, I was grateful that anyone was reading, but, you know, people calling those first couple of books romps. That kept happening. Everything I wrote was a romp. I, I, <laughs> what, what, I'm not writing romps. What are you talking about? Um, and I can't wait to see the reviews for this one. You better not use that word. <laughs> I don't think so. I hope not. I don't think so. Um, and, you know, it was still, it's obviously it was still a compliment. It meant people were enjoying it, but there's something about Um, you know, wanting to be taken seriously. And what I'll say is for this book to write about um, someone looking back on adolescence, I think I would have been scared to do that 
uh, if I were still worrying as much as I used to about being taken seriously. Um, as a woman, you know, writing about younger characters could just be an invitation for people to take this mm-hmm. lightly. I see. Uh, there's still fun in it. There's still humor in it. It's not, you know, the darkest, heaviest book, despite its subject matter. But I, I do think that I would have maybe shied away from the topic early on or um, if The Great Believers hadn't been received as it was. Yeah. Well, you've got a busy few weeks ahead of you. I do. You're going to be touring with the book. But I've got to ask if you're working on any <laughs> new material, anything that you can tease. I can tease. That's all I okay, can good. do. Because, really. I mean, you know, I won't tell anyone. Right. No, this is private, right? We're not, <laughs> totally okay, we're private. not on air. Um, so here's what I'll say. I'm... Um, I'm writing something that is set in Europe in the 1930s um, that involves uh, Germany before the war. It's not a World War II narrative. It's actually not a Holocaust narrative either. So it's it's maybe different than what people would imagine. Okay. Um, but I think it's a really interesting time right now in America to look at 1930s, 1920s, 1930s Germany and everything that was happening there and the complicity of a lot of regular citizens. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. So I I was able to travel um, for research uh, after some COVID delays. I was able to get to Germany this past fall and do some research and... uh, as soon as all this touring is over, I'll be, I'll be right able now. To we're we're focused more. on this one. Yes. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> might get some writing done on the airplane. Love that. That's author Rebecca McKay. Her latest novel, it's called I Have Some Questions for You, and it's available tomorrow wherever you get your books. And if you want to dive even deeper into Rebecca's world and this great book, Rebecca will be at the Apollo Theater in Lincoln Park this Saturday in conversation with author Lindsay Hunter. For more information on that and to purchase tickets, head over to our website, wbez.org slash events. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.